Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast where a middle-aged man plays adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, H.J. Doom, and this episode we're playing through Fighting Fantasy Book 21, The Unfathomably Dangerous Trial of the Champions, the sequel to the infamous Death Trap Dungeon, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Before we get into the meat of the episode, there's the small matter of some Patreon news. Firstly, I have two new patrons to thank, Sebastian and Jack. They have received, in addition to my undying gratitude, a copy of my very first adventure gamebook, The House of the Unquiet Dead. If you want your own copy, as well as the warm glow that comes from helping keep this podcast going, then all you have to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledge as little as a single English pound. And I really do appreciate every single person that supports me. It makes a bigger difference to my life than you will probably ever know. Now, having delivered my gamebook, the question naturally follows, what rewards can people expect in 2022? I'm glad you asked, mysterious voice in my head. The plan is to try and do another gamebook before the end of the year, provided I can fit it in around being a full-time student. But... In the meantime, I'm planning to produce a few smaller projects. I've almost finished the first one, a simple RPG designed to simulate Saturday morning cartoons like He-Man and Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. I'm pleased with how it's shaping up. It's got possibly my favourite character generation system I've ever written. On top of that, I'm also writing a short play-by-mail game as well, but I'm going to reveal more about that the nearer we get to the time of release. Anyway, that's more than enough of that. We've got a game book to play. And what a game book. Trial of the Champions sees Ian Livingstone return to the series for the first time since book 14, Temple of Terror. And it's fair to say he's out for blood. Trial of the Champions was sold as the more deadly version of Death Trap Dungeon. And given how deadly Death Trap Dungeon was, that is no mean boast. This one I've been looking forward to since I played Death Trap Dungeon. I'm going to be playing the Wizard re-release of the book from 2010. It's a shame not to have the original Green Spined edition with the cover art depicting a deadly gladiatorial contest, but this was much cheaper. And I can't fault Wizard's production values. The book looks very handsome, it feels really nicely bound, and there's um, slightly odd cover art by Martin McKenna, which depicts a skeleton king on a mighty steed charging out of a large sigil or shield Uh, but we do still have the original interior art by brian williams so that's a plus there's also little dice printed on the pages so you can flip through the book to handle the fights if you don't have dice to hand which i think is a great idea and something i used to do with school textbooks when i was first role-playing and my friends and i would be trying to play dungeons and dragons secretly at the back of the class uh, I'd write numbers on the uh, from like 1 to 20 or whatever on the insides at the top of each page and we would riffle through those in lieu of rolling dice which obviously was a lot quieter and easier to hide. It's amazing I got any GCSEs at all. I think this book is delightful. It's a lovely tribute to the original and it is much more affordable than trying to get a second-hand copy of the 1986 edition. It even gives you some sample characters to play with although one of them has a skill of 8 which seems unlikely to be enough to make it through an Ian Livingstone book. So without any further ado, let's get into the basics. 
So here we are back in classic fighting fantasy territory for the character creation. We've got skill, we've got stamina, we've got luck, no provisions and no potions. Just you, your stats against the world. And that's a small detail, but I think to the hardened fighting fantasy enthusiast, it signals that the gloves really are off this time and I very much like it. Now this being a famously murderous book, I'm going to be playing a paragon character with a skill of 12, a stamina of 24 and a luck of 12. I doubt that this will be enough to keep my hero, the uh, heroically named Soda Bickersley, alive, but at least they're going to have a shot. Now let's dive into the Trial of the Champions. Wish me luck. I'm going to need it. Background. It is another fiercely hot day. The temperature in the sticky gloom below decks is unbearable. The air is thick with the acrid smell of sweating bodies. Nobody is allowed to speak, and the only noise to be heard above the monotonous creaking of the ship is the regular sharp crack of a whip and the agonised cry which follows it. Row harder, you dogs! shouts the one-eyed overseer as he cracks the whip once again. Enjoy this pleasant voyage while you can, because you'll wish you were back on board after a day or two where you're going. Chained to a bench and straining hard at the long oar, which you pull with two other galley slaves, your mind drifts back to that unfortunate day one week ago, when you were captured. You had left Port Blacksand in a small boat to sail south down the coast to Oyster Bay. As ill luck would have it, a galley appeared on the horizon heading in your direction. It drew steadily closer, and it was not long before your boat was crushed under its bows and you were forced to dive into the sea. There was nothing you could do except climb up a rope that was thrown down to you, as your boat had become no more than a few pieces of broken wood floating aimlessly on the sea. It was useless to struggle, as a crew of twenty hardened cutthroats surrounded you. A gruff voice from behind them ordered them to part, and an ugly, scarred man appeared, grinning and spitting juice from chewing tobacco onto the deck. His teeth were chipped and blackened, and a foul stench wafted in the breeze from his unwashed clothes. Captain Bartala always delivers the goods. You'll make up for the one who died from the flogging yesterday. Saves me having to kidnap a landlubber. Must be my lucky day, but I wouldn't say it was yours. The captain let out a laugh which was like a long wheezing exhalation and barked out an order to his mate. Take the rat below to meet the rest of the vermin. Since that cursed day you have been chained to your oar, rowing to the point of collapse towards an unknown destination. Suddenly you hear a shout of, Land ahoy! and begin to wonder what evil awaits you. An hour later you feel the ship bump against a jetty, and there is much shouting until the ship is finally moored. You are dragged from the ship with the other slaves, and see in the glaring sunlight that you are on a small island. A sombre-looking castle sits atop the island, and next to it there is a semi-ruined amphitheatre. A man wearing black chainmail armour hands Captain Bartella a bag of coins. Satisfied with his payment, the wheezing captain orders his men back to the ship, and you watch them set sail. The man in the black armour steps forward, saying, You are now the property of Lord Carnus. It is your honour to die for his pleasure in the arena of death here on Blood Island. 
I think someone needs to have a word with Lord Carnus. His naming conventions are a little bit on the nose. I feel as though someone's going to ask, sorry, which arena of death is that? Because I've just come from one down south. And is this the Blood Island that's that's northeast of Black Sand or the one that's sort of more southeast? Still, I mean, I guess it's classic rich guy. No one's telling him that he's given his property a bunch of stupid names. Anyway, the, uh, the man in black armour continues. One of you will survive, and he or she will represent Lord Carnus in Fang for the next trial of champions. Baron Succumvit has modified his deadly labyrinth and is now offering 20,000 gold pieces to anyone who gets through it. Of course, Lord Carnus will keep the prize if you get through. But you will be spared your life. Baron Succumvit's reputation suffered greatly last year when someone succeeded in getting through the labyrinth. But he now boasts that no one can survive his new dungeon. Lord Carnus would like one of you to make Succumvit eat his words. You must understand that he hates his brother's fame. Now follow me. That is absolutely typical rich guy. He's got his own island. He's got this massive castle on his own island. He's got a private armed forces and somehow he's still bitter about the fact that his brother used to give him wedgies or whatever when they were kids. No one so insecure as the wealthy. You are led up the hill to the castle where you are locked in a cell in the depths of the lower chambers. Sharing the dark cell with you are four others, a stout dwarf, a man-orc, a sinewy easterner, and a bald, muscle-bound man. The mood is grim, and a few words are spoken as each of you ponders the impending combat. Forty-two slaves arrive by ship. Only one will survive. The dubious reward is entry to a deadly dungeon. Now turn to paragraph one. So, there we go. That is a great setup, isn't it? I think that's amazing. Real sort of 1980s feel to it I think it's got that running man vibe I can practically hear power chords and chugging guitars very much looking forward to finding out how I mess this up at dawn the following day you are woken by the sound of heavy footsteps approaching down the corridor a key turns in the lock of the cell door and two guards wearing black chainmail enter carrying trays of food Eat well, says one of them, as you will need all of your strength to survive the day. By the end of it, you may all be dead. The guard turns to you and offers you some bread and a bowl of soup. Do you wish to take the food, or would you rather try and overcome the guard and make an escape? I think I can tell that trying to overcome the guard and make an escape is going to lead to a short stabbing incident. On this occasion, I think I will take the food. The soup is thick with chicken and vegetables and it tastes delicious. You devour it greedily and mop up the last drops with the bread. You have not eaten well for a fortnight and now feel fit and ready for the coming ordeal. When you have all finished eating you are led away to begin your first day in the arena of death. You are in the middle of the procession of 42 slaves which wends its way along various corridors until you reach the amphitheatre. The sun is already beating down, making the sand in the arena uncomfortably hot to your bare feet. Seated high in the stands is a dark, hooded figure surrounded by guards. 
You watch him rise to his feet and lift his arms into the air, commanding silence. You all know why you are here, Lord Carnus begins. It is my wish to be represented in the trial of champions. Some of you will die today, some tomorrow, more the following day until only one of you is left. Those about to die, I salute you. Lord Carnus sits down again and nods his head to signal the start of proceedings. It's not enough that he's going to have us all basically murdered. He's got to try and make himself sound like the big man while he does it. The slaves are split into seven groups of six, and you find yourself in a group accompanied by an elf, two northmen, a dwarf, and an ogre. Something of a group of death, I can't help but feel. Your group is chosen first, and you are told that the first event is a race to test strength and stamina. A crude sack containing several heavy rocks is strapped to your back. You watch as burning coals are brought into the arena and poured over a section of the makeshift racetrack. The six of you are then lined up at the start, each carrying your burden, and are told to race round the track until one of you is lapped or collapses. Then you are off, and you all jostle for position on the way to jumping the first pile of burning coals. So, uh, this is a genuinely horrible thing to do to people, uh, making them run. Already he's showing the fiendish ingenuity of a PE teacher. So, do we want to set the pace, or would we rather stay at the back? I think we'll lurk at the back, which is my natural place to go whenever I'm asked to run anywhere. Which, to be honest, in my 40s is never. Of course, that's one of the main upsides of being in your 40s. One of the downsides is I don't think I could run even if I needed to. One of the Northmen takes the lead, setting up a fast pace. Round and round the arena you run, gritting your teeth harder each time you jump over the burning coals. After 20 minutes, nobody has been left behind, and the Northman increases his stride. Throw two dice, adding three to the total if you are flogged by the guards. I was not flogged by the guards. Get in. So we're trying to get underneath our skill score. I feel like usually this would be a, uh, a stamina check but of course it's far too early in the adventure for us to have really lost any stamina so it becomes a skill check but yeah 3d6 under your stamina would be the usual way of doing this i can't help but feel so i get a three waste of a good three but never mind the northman increases his lead over the rest of you but you feel as though you still have a lot in reserve should he come close to lapping the pack when he gets within 10 meters of catching up everyone decides to sprint there are only two runners ahead of you, but you do not look back. Suddenly, there is an agonised cry followed by a shout which calls an end to the race. The dwarf lies prostrate in the sand, having collapsed, just as the Northman caught up to him. While you are led back to your cells, the dwarf is quickly put to death before the start of the next race. Correctly identified that it's not about winning, it's about not coming last which is very much my view of life in general. But uh, sadly, the dwarf with his little stumpy legs has been killed, but we live to do calisthenics another day. When all of the races are finished and the survivors are back in their cells, you discover that the bald man does not return. Now there are only three others in your cell. Although exhausted, you find it difficult to fall asleep. Your mind is occupied with the challenge that the next day will bring. In the morning... You are fed, and then one by one the slaves are led away to the arena. Eventually your turn comes, and when you reach the door to the arena you are told to choose weapons. Broadsword and shield, or trident and net. So, 
make our choice. On the one hand, I feel like the broadsword and shield is classic and suitable for most eventualities, but I'm going to go for Trident and Net because I don't think any other fighting fantasy book has given me the opportunity to show off my Trident skills and my Net skills at the same time. So that's what I'm going to pick. I hope I do not get punished for my hipster weapon choices. A guard opens the door to the arena and you step out onto the hot sand which is now stained red with the blood of fallen combatants. Suddenly, another door in the arena wall opens and out steps the dreaded bone crusher beast. Its tough leathery skin glistening in the sun. Its ugly head is small and houses two narrow, near-blind eyes, a flat nose and tendrils hanging over its taut mouth. Its torso, however, is massive, and its long arms are dauntingly powerful. So, um, there's a picture of the bone crusher beast. It looks both intimidating and slightly jaded, I would say. It has the look of a bone crusher beast that has already murdered, you know, eight or nine people today, and is now sort of going through the motions. But anyway, I'm fighting it with a trident and net. You allow yourself a faint smile, as you have chosen a good weapon with which to fight your adversary. Edged weapons cause little damage to the iron-like hide of a bone crusher. There is only one way to slay a bone crusher, and that is to make it fall to the ground, whereupon its delicate balance will be totally destroyed, and it will be impossible for the bone crusher to get to its feet again. You move forward cautiously to snare it with your weighted net. Roll one die. Uh, one to three or four to six. So I get a five. Your throw is on target and lands on top of the near-sighted bone crusher. As it thrashes around, it becomes more and more entangled and lets out an enraged howl. Before it can break free, you tug hard and pull the beast to the ground. Bone Crusher lies helpless and defeated. Panting with relief, you are taken back to your cell. Honestly, I did expect to be more or less dead by now, but uh, let's see how we get on. By the end of the day, only one other person returns to your cell. It is the mean-looking Easterner, a man who looks as though he would murder you for two copper pieces. Judgmental on my part, considering I would almost certainly murder him for two copper pieces. Uh, I feel as though I'm not really in a position to cast shade, but hey-ho. As the light quickly fades, the guard shouts out an unexpected command. There are now two of you left in each cell. I only want one to come out in the morning for tomorrow's combat. Sleep well. <laughs> the guard bursts out laughing at his joke. And even before he has finished, the Easterner dives at you, brandishing a long, sharp pin which was concealed in his headband. Unarmed, you must fight to the death. So there's a picture of the Easterner. Got a dragon tattoo on his chest, uh, kind of pigtail, moustache. Uh, it's a nice, nice drawing. It's got lots of action. He's sort of lunging directly into the frame. He also has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 8, indicating that I was fairly sensible to uh, pick a paragon character. This would have probably finished me off. Anyway, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Easterner uh, with his hat pin. He's uh, managed to reduce me from 24 to a stamina of 16. I really wasn't rolling at all well. So, uh, but anyway, I survived, which is nice. So uh, onwards. I feel like starting you off with a skill 10 stamina 8 fight is pretty much peak Ian Livingstone. 
you slump back against the cell wall after the fierce fight with the Easterner and fall asleep from exhaustion. When all the survivors are assembled in the arena in the morning, there are only 12 of you left. The first test of the day involves a deadly machine. You'll need lightning reactions and steel nerves to survive it. It is made of a pole fixed to a heavy base. Two sharp blades stick out from either side of the pole, one at head height and one at ankle height. One of the slaves is made to stand by the pole, which is promptly spun around by one of the guards. The slave alternately has to duck under one blade and jump over the other to avoid being badly cut. Your turn comes last, and there are nine survivors so far, two others having had their throats cut. You stand by the pole, adrenaline pumping through your veins. The guard spins the pole, and you start to jump and duck. Another skill test. This is such a 1980s video game challenge. Yeah, I'm having flashbacks to... Uh, early platforming fun with this one. It's, it's a nice evocative little challenge, isn't it? So anyway, two dice, same or less than skill, which means I automatically succeed. We roll for form's sake and get a five. You get into a steady rhythm of ducking and jumping, and slowly the pole spins to a halt. You have survived another ordeal. The next test begins immediately. You and the rest are split into two groups of five, it's a real sense of um, horrible team-building away day to these uh, tests in some ways. You watch the first group of a dwarf, a manork, a warrior woman, a barbarian, and a dark-skinned southerner stand silently as a spiked ball and chain is lashed to each of their sword arms, and a small shield is lashed to their other hand. They are blindfolded and ordered to commence battle against one another until there is only one left standing. It is a sickening spectacle to watch as the fighters tread warily around the arena, swinging their balls and chains. The dwarf falls first, quickly followed by the warrior woman. In the end, the southerner stands triumphant, and his blindfold is removed. He is led away, and then each member of your group is armed in the same way. You can feel your heart pounding in your chest as the order is given to commence combat against the four unseen adversaries. Barefoot in the sand, nobody makes a sound. So, um, nightmare, but without the benefit of four preteens shrieking, conflicting advice in my ear. So, that's nice. Uh, we can either step to the left or we can step to the right. Well, I think we all know that whenever I get a choice between left and right early in an adventure, I take a step to the left. You step slowly to your left, straining your ears for the sound of movement. Suddenly there is an agonised cry and a dull thud as a body falls to the ground not far in front of you. Do you wish to step further to your left? Or would you rather stand your ground and swing the ball and chain? So, got lucky with the first stepping left. Uh, there's no option to take a step to the right. So I think we will swing the old ball and chain. Just as you begin swinging the ball and chain, one of the other combatants steps up behind you swinging his weapon. Test your luck. I'm automatically lucky, but for form's sake, I roll a seven. Luck now down to eleven. You make first contact, and your unseen opponent cries out in pain as the spike ball slams into his shoulder, but you do not hear him fall. You turn your head, listening intently for another grunt or groan. The man bites his lip and makes no sound. Do you wish to stay where you are and continue swinging the ball and chain, or step to your left? Well, I think this time we will step to our left. 
You walk very slowly, as you know there are bodies lying in the sand. You stop to listen, but hear nothing. You decide to turn around and walk in the opposite direction. Suddenly you hear a gruff voice. If there's anybody else, I'm over here. You decide to accept this bold challenge and walk in the direction of the voice, swinging your ball and chain. You clash head-on with your unseen opponent in a blind fight to the death. So the fighting slave has a skill of eight and a stamina of eight. Interesting that Ian Livingstone has decided not to take the option of giving you various skill penalties for this battle. Yeah, I think if you're not going to create some kind of mini-game governing the ball and chain blind fighting, I think actually it's, it's a good call not to just give people a skill penalty because that's the lazy way of doing it and it's not actually necessary because the narrative that you've gone through thus far has already done the job of selling the idea that you're fighting in this very difficult way. So sticking in some additional rules for this fight would actually, I think, have been gilding the lily. So anyway, I'm going to fight the fighting slave who has a skill of eight and a stamina of eight by rolling some dice. I have successfully beaten the blind man to death. So that's good. Uh, I didn't take any damage, redeeming myself from the first fight, so that's good. A cheer goes up as your opponent drops to the ground. You hear guards enter the arena, and soon your blindfold is removed and your weapons are untied from your wrists. You are led away to your cell, realising that only the southerner stands between you and victory. That night you are well fed and your wounds are bandaged. Add four stamina points, so we're back up to twenty. In the morning, the familiar ritual of being led into the arena is repeated, but this time you are made to stand face to face with the southerner. You are each handed a dagger and a studded glove. At the command of Lord Carnus, the final arena battle commences. So there's a picture of Lord Carnus. He's got a very, very stupid hat. It's got no less than four spikes at different angles. He's holding a mace that I would lay good money he doesn't know how to use properly. And looking down on the southerner, who looks very, very intimidating. He's got a proper bodybuilder's physique, and the studded glove and knife combination looks very intimidating. He's also got a skill of 10 and a stamina of 10, as if that wasn't enough. So, once again, I'm going to roll some dice. He might have looked quite intimidating, but I was able to dispatch him with relative ease, uh, my stamina was reduced to 16 over the course of that scuffle. As the southerner drops to his knees, clutching his stomach, he manages to utter a few words with his dying breath. Good luck in the dungeon, stranger. But if you get a chance to be alone with Carnus, remember those of us who died in his arena. Uh, uh. Uh, the southerner grimaces with pain and falls silent. You vow to yourself that you will avenge your fellow slave's death and kill Lord Carnus if you survive the deadly labyrinth of Fang. And that night you are the honoured guest of Lord Carnus and indulge yourself in your every whim. You gorge yourself on delicious food and enjoy yourself long into the night. After a week of luxurious living, you return to full fitness. Restore your stamina score to its initial total. And I bet Lord Carnus expected me to be grateful for that as well. Then, locked in chains, you set sail with Lord Carnus and 30 of his guards. 
and ten days later arrive in Fang, the venue for the annual trial of champions. The town is swarming with people intrigued by the trial and eager to celebrate. However, there is no time for you to enjoy the hospitality of Baron Circumvent, as it is late in the evening of the 30th of April, and the trial begins at dawn the next day. You spend the night in a tavern under the watchful eyes of the guards, and at dawn are led to the entrance of the deadly labyrinth. It is supported by ornately carved stone pillars depicting demons, deities, and writhing serpents. A genuine sense of nostalgia at being back. A bizarre sense of nostalgia when you consider that I didn't survive Death Trap Dungeon, but a sense of nostalgia nonetheless. You see Baron Circumvit shaking the hands of the other contestants, a chaos champion wearing dark, spiked armour, an eastern warlord in full battle costume, an elven prince and a dwarf noble. That chaos champion intrigues me. Bit of the old Games Workshop influence showing through there, I can't help but feel. This year, the prize has attracted illustrious contenders. You take your place alongside them and are asked to draw a bamboo stick from the hand of the Baron. The number two is etched on the stick. You are to enter the dungeon second after the dwarf. To the cheers of the exultant onlookers, you pass between the pillars armed only with a magnificent sword given to you by Lord Carnus. Without a backpack, food or armour, you feel ill-prepared for the coming ordeal. But at least you have this fine sword and a leather pouch at your belt. The sound of the crowd quickly dies away as you walk down the dimly lit tunnel. What horrors lie before you? It is impossible to imagine, but you know that Baron Circumvit has spent the last year modifying his death trap dungeon so that it is now reputedly lethal beyond comprehension. Kind of an Elon Musk figure, Baron Circumvit, isn't he? One of those billionaires who just spends his uh, ludicrous wealth on some deranged vanity project. The tunnel leads straight ahead for 50 metres, and then you come to a doorway in the left-hand wall with a keep-out sign written on it in dried blood. You hear scratching and sniffing sounds coming from the other side of the door. Do you want to draw your sword and open the door, or would you rather keep walking down the tunnel? Well, I feel as though a keep-out sign in a dungeon designed by a megalomaniacal lunatic would normally be a double bluff, but it being written in dried blood, that suggests some poor soul at the end of their tether just trying to do a fella a solid favour. So I am going to ignore the sign and keep walking down the tunnel. The tunnel soon comes to the end at a T-junction. If you wish to head left, you can, or you can head right. Well, this time I think we will take the right. In the distance, you hear the sound of running water, and soon the tunnel ends at the edge of a pit. A rope bridge straddles the pit, and beyond it, the tunnel continues straight on. There is a wooden box tied to the bridge, and a sign above it which reads, Pay gold to cross. A rope hangs down from the bridge. Peering down into the gloom of the pit, you can just make out a fast-flowing river far below. So we can drop a gold object into the box and walk across the bridge. We can walk across the bridge without paying or climb down the rope into the pit. Well, the sum total of my possessions as it stands are quite a nice sword, a small pouch and a thong. So I don't think we're going to be able to drop a gold object into the box. So this 
leaves us with a difficult choice between climbing down the rope and just sauntering across. Or I should say there is a, a nice illustration of the rope bridge. It does a very good job of illustrating the dilemma that I am in. So I don't think there's much mileage in climbing down the rope into the pit, so I'm going to try and walk across the bridge without paying and hope for the best. You step warily onto the rope bridge, testing it to make sure it will bear your weight. You look around but see nobody, so you hurry across the bridge unchallenged. So far so good. I already feel as though every choice I'm making is the wrong choice, and I think that's very much the feeling that Livingstone was probably going for. The tunnel eventually comes to a dead end. There is a small tablet set in the end wall with a small circular hole in its centre. Around the hole are etched the words, One is on and two is gone. Do you wish to reach into the circular hole, or would you rather retrace your steps back over the bridge and walk beyond the T-junction? One is on and two is gone. It sounds dangerous, but I kind of have to know, so I'm going to try sticking my hand in. Slowly, you reach further into the hole until your fingers touch two buttons. One with the number one stamped into it and the other bearing the number two. So one is on, two is gone. I mean, it feels as though it's talking about fingers, doesn't it? So we'll press button number one. As soon as you press the button, a large stone slab in the left-hand wall of the tunnel pivots open. You step through the gap and find yourself in another tunnel. You soon come to a door in the right-hand wall which has an old broom nailed to it. Do you want to open the door or would you rather carry on down the tunnel? Some kind of witch? Anyway, we're going to try and open the door. As soon as you open the door, you are met by a blast of warm air. For a second, you think it's a trap until you see a huge fire burning under a simmering cauldron in the centre of the small room. An old woman is dropping rats, slugs, maggots and centipedes into the cauldron and appears to be enjoying herself. So there's a, a picture of a old woman doing just that. It has to be said that the, uh, the rats look a bit cheesed off, but she does look like she's enjoying herself. The um, cauldron has got horrible screwed up faces on it, which I think is a nice touch. It's, uh, it's a good piece of work. A good piece of work. It does raise the question of what uh, she does... The other 51 weeks of the year when the uh, Trial of the Champions isn't on. She's an out-of-work actor, isn't she? That's what she is. Anyway, do we want to enter the room or do we want to close the door? Uh, let's enter the room. The old crone looks up, cackles an evil laugh and throws some dust on the floor. A cloud of smoke rises up and the old witch vanishes. Presumably to go back to browsing the audition pages of the stage. Suddenly there is movement above you, and you have just enough time to draw your sword as two vampire bats swoop down to attack. The first vampire bat has a skill of five and a stamina of five. The second vampire bat has a skill of five and a stamina of four. You fight them one at a time. However, while you're fighting the first vampire bat, the second will cling to your back and suck blood from your neck. So you lose one additional stamina point during every attack round with the first Vampire Bat. So, nice little combat trick there. Oh, very nice, actually. And, uh, yeah, I am going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Vampire Bats. I opted to use a point of luck to try and 
take out the first vampire bat more quickly, which was successful. So I took him out in two rounds. So I lost only two points of stamina, taking me down to 22 and killed the second bat very, very easily. I mean, have you ever tried to fight a bat? Straightforward, you just smash its face off. You decide to add your own ingredients to the witch's brew by dropping the vampire bats into the cauldron in the hope of poisoning her. You look around the room and find a polished wooden box with a face carved on it. A face which you recognise, it is that of the dwarf who entered the dungeon before you. You also find a small file of red dust hidden inside an old book. So, choices, choices, choices. Do we want to open the wooden box? Well, given that it's clearly eaten the dwarf, I think not. Uh, we can throw some dust on the floor. Hmm? Or put the file in your belt pouch, or just leave the room and continue along the corridor. Now, I'm not going to be throwing dust on the floor. The fact that the putting the file in your belt pouch and leaving the room are separate options should probably clue me in a little bit to the idea that maybe something isn't quite right with that file of red dust. But I am going to put it in my belt pouch anyway. I feel as though the dwarf box is the obvious trap here. There is nothing else of interest in the room, and despite your hunger, you refrain from helping yourself to a bowl of the bubbling brew. Do you want to open the box or just leave the room? I want to just leave the room, thank you. So I've got a file red dust. If nothing else I can sell it to a tourist once I've got out. You soon come to another doorway in the right hand wall. Nailed to the door is a small bird, long dead and shriveled. You want to open the door or would you rather continue along the tunnel? Don't know why, but that shriveled bird is screaming spider to me. But we're gonna try and open the door anyway. The door is locked. Do you want to try and charge it open with your shoulder or save yourself the effort and walk up the tunnel? Now Someone cruel would stick a pit trap behind a locked door, knowing that there's no key and that the only option is to charge it open. Let's take a, take a moment and think about that. Problem is, the other option is just wandering off, isn't it? Okay, we'll try and charge the door open. Skill check, which I pass with a seven. You stand back before throwing your full weight against the door. It bursts open. You draw your sword and step into the darkness before you. The temperature inside the derelict room is much lower than in the tunnel. You begin to shiver as soon as you step into the room and you can see your breath hanging in clouds. In the far wall of the room you see a large tunnel entrance from which you can hear the sound of slow footsteps coming towards you and a long, low, hissing sound. You stand your ground, sword in hand, as a hideous beast enters the room. It has a bloated green stomach like that of a huge toad, a grotesque misshapen head supported by a blubbery neck. It has a circular extended mouth whose fat purple lips surround rows of sharp teeth. The beast slices its prey and then sucks the innards out. Fresh intestines are the delicacy of the cold claw and it intends to eat yours as a punishment for entering its lair. So there's a picture of the cold claw which looks, I don't want to say heroin-addicted moomin, but heroin-addicted moomin only armed is the way I would describe it. Uh, it's pretty grim, I have to say. It's a great illustration tied to some wonderful evocative prose. I feel like there's a good adventure game book in travelling the world trying to capture various 
specimens for Baron Sukumvit's latest iteration of his dungeon. Maybe that may make a, uh, a fun fan addition to the canon. Anyway, the Cold Claw has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 11. And as the vile beast lumbers towards you, the temperature appears to drop even further. Reduce your skill score by one for this combat only. So an effective skill of 11. So I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Cold Claw. It reduced me to 14 stamina. The room has long been abandoned by the Cold Claw whose cave opens into it. The few pieces of furniture that are left are broken and scattered about the room, and a thick layer of grey dust covers everything. In a pile of rubble in a corner of the room you find an old clay pot with a wax-sealed top. Do you want to break open the pot, walk into the cave, or leave the room and walk on up to the tunnel? quite like the idea that this room was something different in the first iteration of Death Trap Dungeon. That's quite fun. But yeah, I'm definitely not going to walk into the cave because it's presumably absolutely freezing in there. So I'm going to break open the pot. I'm going to feel like that's the, uh, the sensible one. Something rattles inside the pot, but when you throw it on the floor, it does not break open, but merely cracks and a green gas starts to escape from it and fill the room. Do you want to stay in the room, run into the cave or run back into the tunnel? So... I think we're running back into the tunnel here. I mean, maybe there's a good wizard somewhere who's uh, busy making a magical green gas that, you know, heals people and makes the world a better place. But if there is such a, a magic user, they're going to have to deal with the fact that everyone is going to run in terror from their health-giving green gas because that is the sensible option. So anyway, we're going to run in terror. The tunnel continues another 30 metres before turning sharply to the left. On rounding the corner, you see that there is a new branch in the right-hand wall. You are surprised to see a small humanoid suddenly pop his head out of the new branch. But when he sees you, he quickly retracts it. You call out and give chase, but by the time you reach the corner, he's nowhere to be seen. You decide to walk quickly down the new branch of the tunnel in the hope of seeing him again. I do hope it's Hoggle out of Labyrinth. Can't have been the only one thinking that. You soon reach a door in the left-hand wall of the tunnel. You listen at the door but hear nothing. Do you want to open the door or keep walking? I want to open the door, please. The door opens into a narrow, gloomy corridor, at the end of which you see a stone plinth with a large glass dome resting on top of it. Four black candles are burning on each corner of the plinth, illuminating the dome with an eerie glow. As you approach, you see that there is a tiny man trapped inside the dome, jumping up and down, trying to attract your attention. The man is no more than half a metre tall and is wearing tight-fitting black hose. You notice that his ears are pointed and that he has a wispy grey beard. He gestures to you to lift the glass dome. Do you want to do as the man bids, or would you rather walk back down the corridor and return to the tunnel? Now, he doesn't look like a leprechaun, but I'm not prepared to take any chances where fey mischievous sprites are concerned. I do not care for them. I think they are fundamentally malicious creatures. So I'm going to leave him to it. He can rant and rave for as long as he likes, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, presumably if he's part of the Trial of the Champions, once everyone's dead, someone will come and let him out. Further along the tunnel... 
and you stumble upon a pile of rocks. Something underneath the rocks catches the light and sparkles. Carefully you remove some of the rocks until you can see what is hidden underneath. It is a broadsword, finely honed and perfectly balanced. Do you want to use it instead of your own sword? Or would you rather leave it where it lies and continue your walk? Well, I reread the rules of fighting fantasy. And again, this version of the rules, I just wondered whether there was any kind of modifications. They made it very clear that your skill score can never exceed its initial score unless specifically instructed. So given that most of the time no one can be bothered to specify that it increases your skill past its starting value, I guess I'm probably going to leave this where it is. On we go. You soon arrive at another door in the tunnel wall. The handle turns, but wooden boards have been nailed across the door frame. Do you want to lever the boards off with your sword or press on along the tunnel? I mean, all I've got so far in terms of loot is a vial of red dust. And I, I, this being Ian Livingstone, I don't think that's going to be quite enough to beat the dungeon. So I guess we are going to see what's behind this door. The nails holding the boards in place make a loud creaking noise as you prise the boards away. Test your luck. My current luck is 10 and I roll a 4. So my luck now down to 9, but I am lucky. Despite all the noise you make, no creature of any kind arrives to investigate. At last the final board comes free and you are able to open the door. You pull open the door and walk into a small room which has not been entered for years. A thick layer of dust covers everything and cobwebs hang down like dirty old curtains. Two skeletons, mouths hanging open, lie half submerged in the dust, propped up against the far wall. One of the skeletons is pointing at the other, and there is a illustration in which the skeletons look absolutely great, but the cobwebs look like net curtains. Suddenly the door slams shut behind you and the pointing skeleton starts to speak. Brother and sister, I have none, but that man's father is my father's son. Who is he? So, choices. Run for the door and a couple of different replies. Time for me to have a bit of a think. <laughs> I think that the other skeleton is the first skeleton's son, which is happily one of the options. You are a wise challenger, the voice from the skeleton states without emotion. Your reward for passing this test is in a drawer of the table. The skeleton's mouth remains open, but no more sound issues from it. You look around the dark room and soon find a small table with a drawer. Carefully, you slide the drawer open and find a small iron key inside. You drop it into the pouch on your belt, leave the room and continue down the tunnel. Iron key, that sounds more like it. Proper living stone is an iron key, isn't it? It is not long before you arrive at yet another door in the left-hand tunnel wall. Do you want to open the door or keep on walking? I think we will open the door. The door opens into an empty room. You enter the room cautiously, and as you do so, the door swings slowly shut behind you. You search the room for a secret passageway, but find no sign of one. To your surprise, the door is not locked, and you are able to walk out into the tunnel. However, 
You do not know that you entered a room of teleportation and are in a different tunnel from the one you were walking along previously. Unaware of your teleportation, you walk on down the tunnel. Some things going on there which I probably will talk about at the end to do with how it's giving us the player information that our character doesn't have, but that that is the only way to make the teleportation remotely interesting, given that it's a secret teleportation. I think that's kind of quite pioneering in terms of how we now think about structuring story games, but I'll probably talk a bit more to that at the end when I've got time to organise my thoughts. You follow the tunnel around a right-hand bend until it ends at a wooden door. You have no choice but to open it and are surprised by what you see inside the room. Sitting cross-legged in the middle of the room is a fat, bald man, eastern in appearance. I have to say, describing whole swathes of the population of this admittedly fictional fantasy world by just invoking a cardinal point of the compass is a thing that has not aged well. The man sits motionless and holds a bamboo pole between his outstretched hands. Half a dozen coloured wooden blocks are hovering in a circle in midair above him. The man's eyes are grey and blank and he is obviously blind. The room is sparsely furnished with a slatted wooden bed, a cupboard and a large wooden chest, which has pride of place in the centre of the floor. There is an illustration of the man, and I think the best thing I can say about it is it's, it's very competently drawn. Could have been a lot worse. A welcome, contestant number two. I have been waiting for you. I am Noy, a trial master and a servant of Baron Sukumvit. My duty is to test you in three ways before allowing you to proceed. Are you ready? Do you want to obey the trial master or would you rather attack him with your sword? Well, I think we'll be obeying this trial master because I've seen Zatoichi, the... Uh, Beat Takashi version of it anyway. Yeah, you can't trust blind people. Uh, they often turn out to be martial artists. I guess he also Daredevil. So, um, we will obey him. The three things I am instructed to test you in are strength, intelligence and fighting ability. Should you fail any of these tests, you will not be allowed to continue the trial of champions. We insist on a, a worthy winner. The first test will be a tug of war against... A caveman. A door behind a trial master opens and a huge man with long hair dressed in ragged furs strides into the room. That's a member of Manowar. Terrifying. The trial master taps the floor in front of him with his pole and the floor drops away to reveal a dark pit. He then orders the caveman to fetch a thick rope from the cupboard. He gives you the end of the rope and tells you to take the strain with the rope pulled taut over the pit. He counts to three and then shouts, uh, Heave! Caveman's strength is incredible, and you grit your teeth and pull as hard as you can. The caveman has a skill of seven. Resolve the tug of war as you would in a normal combat, but no stamina is lost because no wounds are inflicted. And it's first to four, so this is slightly unusual combat approach. Um, kind of similar to uh, one I use in my game book. My version is a little bit kinder, though. So, yeah, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated a caveman in a tug-of-war. Not a sentence I was expecting to say this morning. Your strength is greater than that of the caveman. With a mighty heave, you pull him forward and watch him fall headlong down the pit. Unconcerned by the loss of his servant, the trial master speaks again. I will now ask you a question. Think carefully before answering. 
He points to the wooden chest in the middle of the room and says, Inside this chest there are six more chests, and each of these contains three smaller chests. How many chests are there altogether? So uh, we have to work out the answer and then turn to the reference with the same number. And if you're wrong and you don't know the answer, then we go to a different one. So I'm going to have a quick think. I got the right answer. So uh, it was pretty straightforward, actually. Uh, I yeah, just have to remember that the not to forget the first chest. Um, which is, I think, easily done in this sort of thing. The trial master remains silent for a moment and then says slowly, You have passed the second test. Now comes the final part. Combat with me. We will fight with bamboo poles, not to the death, but as a simulation of a sword fight. Any strike to the head or chest will be considered a death blow. For your information, my blindness is no handicap, as my ears will tell me where you are. Now fetch your pole from the cupboard, for I am ready. As you take the pole, the trialmaster stands up, and the wooden blocks fall to the ground. Treading silently on bare feet, he moves towards you, his head turned to one side to aid his hearing. Do you wish to lunge at him with your pole and catch him off balance with a quick strike, or ready yourself to counter a blow? So, I do like that this is showing you why Lord Carnus got us to do the uh, blindfold fighting bit, because it prepares us for this. So it's a kind of a bit like he's got some spies in Succumbit's camp, figuring out what some of the challenges are going to be. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, I am going to ready myself to counter a blow, because I think this guy is probably pretty good. The agile old man strides nimbly towards you with a bamboo pole held to one side. You cannot tell whether he's going to bring the pole down over his head and strike at your head, or sideswipe you in the ribs. Do you want to anticipate a strike to the head or the ribs? Well, we'll defend the ribs. Held out to one side, after all. You anticipate the trial master's move. He brings the pole around in a sweeping arc towards your side, but you block it with ease. His pole strikes your own with a loud crack. Do you wish to take the initiative and strike back or defend again? I'm going to strike back. You thrust your right arm forward in an attempt to strike the trialmaster's neck. He tries to counter the blow by bringing his pole up quickly across his body. His skill score is eight. Roll two dice and see if he succeeds. So come on, let's have a, uh, a nice high roll. First die, five. So, four or more, come on, four plus, four plus, one, no, okay, so um, it's less than his skill score. The trial master reacts quickly and blocks your thrusting pole. Shouldn't giggle, shouldn't giggle. Sweat breaks out on his forehead as the trial master realises that you are a better fighter than he originally thought. Making the most of your psychological advantage, you step forward again. Do you want to execute a body blow or make an overhead strike? Let's go overhead. No, let's go for a body blow. We haven't done a body blow yet. The trial master anticipates your blow and blocks your pole with a sideways check. The poles crack together and your advantage is lost. With renewed courage, the trial master leaps in the air and tries a do-or-die aerial assault. You thrust your pole upwards in a desperate attempt to strike him as he lands on top of you. 
roll two dice. If the total is the same or less than your skill score, one thing happens. If it's greater, then another thing happens. So a four is well below my skill of 12. I imagine I've struck him with my pole. The leaping trial master tries to deflect your blow with his feet, but you sidestep and strike him in the ribs as he lands. You let out a victory cry, delighted with your triumph against the odds in ritual combat. I mean, you say that, but I have just beaten up a blind man with a skill of eight. It, it's not that brilliant, all things considered. The trial master stands back, panting heavily. Once he has caught his breath again, he says, You have passed the third test. You may now continue your walk through the dungeon. Leave this room through the door behind me. The old man offers you no words of advice or encouragement, so you leave his room. You open the door and pass through the squalid sleeping area of the caveman into another long, gloomy tunnel. Presumably there are also some other cavemen sitting playing cards, waiting for the next one to come along, because there's no guarantee that only one of us makes it to this encounter. Anyway, you soon come to a stone fountain in the shape of a leaping fish. Do you want to drink at the fountain? Or would you rather continue walking? I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say it's fine. I'm going to try and drink from the fountain. The cool water of the fountain is refreshing, but has a terrible side effect. Add one stamina point, but deduct two skill points as the water rapidly accelerates your aging process. You have aged 30 years in less than a minute. That is exactly what being in your mid-40s kind of feels like. Think to yourself, I am sure... I was a teenager a minute ago, but hey-hey. You do not realise what has happened and continue walking resolutely along the tunnel. You're presumably complaining about how much your back near neck now mysteriously hurt. Soon you hear the sound of hooves clattering along the stone floor. The sound echoes down the tunnel. Then you see a shape emerging from the gloom. Seated astride a white skeleton horse is an armoured skeleton with a crown on his skull. Seeing you, the Skeleton King kicks its undead horse into a gallop and holds its sword aloft. You must fight the mounted undead. Always a pleasure to kill royalty, even if someone's already killed them once. There's a nice illustration of the mounted Skeleton King charging me. Now I think about it, that's the one that's on the uh, the wizard version of the book, a version of that art. Uh, the Skeleton King has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 10. Edge weapons like swords and daggers do little harm to skeletons unless you have a hammer with which to fight the skeleton king. You'll only cause it to lose one stamina point during a successful attack round. So, uh, with my new skill of 10 and only a bladed weapon, I'm going to roll some dice. I have died. I reduced the Skeleton King to a single stamina point. But then, alas, I was unable to overcome my legendary ability to roll very, very small numbers for myself and very, very big numbers for the baddies. So I have died. And looking at my recording counter, I think this is probably as good a point as any to call a halt. I was expecting to have to make use of the sausagey finger bookmark rule many, many times, and I had a little gag all set up to deal with that. 
which I now will have to, I guess, use the next time I make a series of genuinely terrible decisions. I will be back in just a couple of seconds to offer you some closing thoughts. Tatty bye. So, Trial of Champions. First of all, and entirely predictably, I had a very nice time with Trial of Champions. Ian Livingstone is just good at doing this sort of thing. It's the skill I'm most envious of, if I'm honest. The ease with which he conjures a world that is recognisably part of the lineage of fantasy worlds, but one that still feels full of its own identity at the same time. His worlds always feel very coherent, even when he's making a funhouse dungeon like this one. It's nice, too, to get a little backstory on Circumvit and his diabolical brother, Carnus. The jealous brother scheming to get his own back by winning the Trial of Champions by proxy, that has a very plausible ring to it to me, which I think adds a kind of emotional depth to the story. And there's also a bit of classic British cynicism in there as well, Carnus doesn't do a Batman training his mind and body until he's equal to the challenge. No, in classic aristocracy style, he hires some goons to kidnap people and then makes them train their body and mind until they're up to the challenge. That's a wonderful twist. And for all that I love Tolkien, I'm automatically well disposed towards fantasy that doesn't bleat on about the rightful king and shows the upper classes for what they are violent thugs who appropriate the labour of others for no better reason than they happen to be born with the right parents. It's not just flavour though, Carnus really is weeding out the unfit and the mechanics back it up. If you are below average, there's a very good chance that your adventure ends on the arena sands. In some ways, I really regret cheating at the beginning because it would be very interesting to try and make it through the arena with average stats. It's almost like cheating is spoiling your fun in some way. So anyway, that's a takeaway for me for future books that have a reputation for difficulty. Maybe just play it as intended. I should mention briefly the art, which is very strong throughout. It's simple, it's direct. The character work in particular is excellent. There's a few people in this game who are described in ways that border on racial stereotyping, and the art does a good job of using those cues without exaggerating them any further. It doesn't help the dated use of language, but it doesn't make it any worse. I think the first act being so different to Death Trap Dungeon is one of the things that gives this book its own identity, separate from that seminal work. It's more than just a reprise, and the stakes are very different. The lack of provisions and the lack of a potion, that helps hammer this home. Much as I love imagining a big strapping man dealing with his punctured lung by cramming sausages into his face. I think the absence of provisions and the free potion just improves the fighting fantasy experience. And it does it because it makes it so that regaining stamina in the course of play feels like a real reward. Especially in a dangerous dungeon, giving the player regular occasions to regain stamina, that helps create peaks and troughs through the experience. It's not just a gruelling marathon of horrible things happening. And I would say making provisions default is one of the three big early mistakes with the system. Uh, the second is specifying that skill can never rise above its starting value and then writing most of the books as if that wasn't the case. And the third is making testing your luck always result in a loss of luck. These all share a common theme, they reduce design space. 
Trial of Champions shows how putting stamina gains back into the text leads to a more interesting adventure. Regaining stamina, finding some moment of rest and recuperation, that becomes part of the story rather than something externalised to a checkbox on a character sheet. You can still let the player have some situational healing at their own discretion, but you give them an item through the course of the story to do that and it suddenly feels much richer. So I think there's actually a surprisingly big lesson here for design more generally. If you want to externalise something to the rules of the game, think about how much space it's going to take up in the worst case scenario. For instance, adding the phrase, gain four points of stamina to a paragraph, that is not a lot of space. Therefore, you don't need to externalise it. Saying the magic elf bread the elves gave you restores a point of skill, but doesn't take it over its initial value, doesn't take up much space. And that allows you to make decisions about whether or not you want a magical sword to be able to give you superhuman levels of skill. And I think from time to time, you want to give people superhuman levels of skill. Onto the dungeon itself. It's a dungeon. It's pretty great. It's not that big, which I think is a good thing. I find short and sweet is the way I like my dungeons to be. I would rather have two small dungeons with a bit of linking material between them than one big dungeon because I have a terrible sense of direction and a terrible ability to visualise spaces in terms of how they relate to each other and I find that much, much easier with a smaller space. And here, all the fat has been trimmed off. There's nothing here, I don't think, that doesn't need to be there. There are no doors that just open onto empty rooms, for example, which was a thing that kind of happened in Warlock of Fire Top Mountain. You've got a fantastic array of weird monsters and encounters that feel as though they're in a macabre tourist attraction. Several times I thought, this does feel a bit like going around the York Dungeon. This being an Ian Livingstone book, you will be filling your pockets, or rather your pouch. On one unsuccessful playthrough, I had the following items at the time of my death. Three gold rings, a spear, two daggers, a magic breastplate, some glass balls, a mirror, a wooden whistle, a piece of paper with a cryptic message, brass clock hands, a purple cloak and some blue dye. I think you know you've been playing an Ian Livingstone book when you could open a corner shop with the contents of your backpack. It's a stylistic choice and it's one I appreciate and enjoy in the right hands and I think Ian Livingstone has earned the right to be a little bit profligate with the number of unnecessary items he flings in. It's not how I would generally do it but I think it's fine. One of the things I really appreciate going back to me having a very poor sense of direction and a limited ability to conceptualise spaces is I appreciate most of the rooms having a distinctive feature on the doorway to help you remember what's in them. And that's a really simple lesson, I think, for GMs. If you're expecting your players to return to a dungeon location, give them a few good images to help them make a mental map, something that makes an area, and in particular, a doorway or a choice between two tunnels stand out. It just helps so much. And this is a book that I think you're definitely going to want to map to keep track of everything. And I really enjoyed mapping it. I really enjoyed seeing how the structure of the dungeon emerged from my playthroughs. It's appealingly simple 
and the layout makes sense when you see it on a piece of paper. There's a few great traps along the way. My absolute favourite is the siren who tries to lure characters to swim to her rocks so that they can be eaten by the monster that's patrolling the water in which the rock is sighted. I like it for two reasons. Firstly, it works on everyone regardless of gender, which might be the only hint of queer identities anywhere in fighting fantasy, at least so far. Secondly, it's easy to pull out and drop into an existing fantasy campaign because it's a kind of classic. A fight with a sea monster while a siren weaves her spell is a classic. It's not a trap in the gotcha, how dare you open this door sense. It's a fight with complications that make it more interesting. And it's one that I thought I would love to see played out with a group to see how each person approached it differently. And that brings me to the other nice element, which is that most of the traps announce themselves. There's the odd surprise crossbow, but for the most part, you're being shown something that looks suspicious as hell, and given a couple of options for how you want to approach it. You know that you're going to need some items to get out, so the structure of the game forces you to consider how you go about interacting with encounters that more or less have a big sign on them saying, caution, you may lose limbs. And they are simultaneously repellent, but also deeply tempting. And I think that is the perfect mix. Which brings me to my main thesis for this episode. I think adventure game books are more or less the only environment in which the labyrinth full of barely connected but convoluted dangers actually works. For me, neither tabletop RPGs nor video game RPGs can quite make it sing in the same way. Game books are uniquely positioned in that they offer the replayability of video games with some of the design flexibility of tabletop RPGs, in particular where it comes to traps. We all know that traps are a problem in tabletop RPGs. They sound fun on paper, they're a big part of adventure literature, but in reality, they have a tendency to annoy players and cultivate paranoia that slows play down to a crawl. One of my ambitions is to write a game system in which surprise traps are fun for both the players and the GM, but which don't lead to people inching around the dungeon, prodding everything in sight with a 10-foot-long pole. And it's hard. Players, as a rule, don't enjoy nasty surprises unless they're playing a game, say a horror game, in which those nasty surprises are built into the structure. And that's a big downside risk for including those sort of traps. The second issue is that players in a tabletop game aren't usually incentivized to see everything that a dungeon has to offer. Once they've killed the dragon and nicked her stuff, they're off to the nearest tavern to make you, the GM, roleplay NPCs being impressed with them. And rightly so. They've earned that. Meanwhile, you're sulking because they skip right past a bunch of really interesting and meticulously designed contraptions. And sure, you can reuse them, but it's not always the same. In a game book, on the other hand, you're very likely to want to go back and play again, probably because you didn't make it through the first time. Also, if you're someone like me, you'll go back and play again even if you won the first time because you want to find that weird-looking monster you saw in an illustration as you were flipping through to find the right paragraph. There's an experience that only an adventure game book can give you. Or to find the magical amulet that the NPC mentioned in passing. Traps don't create the same behavioural problems because the writer creates the range of options available to the player. 
not many game books allow you to prod your way down the corridor and it doesn't break immersion because if it's well written the reader feels that this is still part of the natural flow of events. Obviously if you overuse traps the reader may well get annoyed that the character they're playing continues blithely walking down corridors even when there's stuff in them but that's just telling you you need to exercise some kind of restraint. While paranoia might make intellectual sense, it doesn't always make intuitive sense because it's not always the way that people react in real life and it's very often not the way people react in stories. Even if a trap in an adventure game book kills you, which, you know, should be a rarity, it doesn't have the same impact as in a tabletop game because you can go back and try again. Knowing that there's stuff you need to find to complete your quest does a good job of incentivizing experimentation. You've also got the fascinating example of the teleport room, which can only work the way it does in a game book because no other format can tell you out of character a thing that has happened to the character without it impacting on that character's behaviour because the rest of the book can be written as if the character doesn't know the thing that the player knows. Now, even with the best tabletop group in the world, telling the players that they've been teleported will have an impact on how they approach the rest of the dungeon. But if you don't tell them they've been teleported, then they may never know the teleport trap was there, particularly if they leave a dungeon by another exit. In a narrative sense, the trap didn't really happen because it didn't impact on the fictional world in any meaningful way. Of course, there's a lot of story games that believe in just telling the players stuff about the scene on the basis that you want them to engage with the stuff you've written and collaborate in making it real at the table. And I think that's a great approach, but I'm old school enough that it never quite gels with my personality and it never quite gels with the nostalgic hit that I'm looking for from a tabletop game. I think it is an excellent approach, but... I played a lot of Paranoia in the early 90s and it left a mark. It has to be said that I do also believe that the role of the GM is to work with the players, not against them, but I think that's just a hint of an adversarial relationship at certain times can be a good thing because it adds a little spice to those moments of high danger so long as the GM is being fair and so long as the GM isn't having fun at the expense of the players. Now, I'm not saying that game books are better than tabletop games. I love tabletop RPGs. I'm writing several as we speak. There's a whole bunch of stuff that tabletop games handle much more easily, not least human interactions. But in the case of a certain kind of dungeon, with a lot of traps and trap-like encounters, adventure game books for me just do it better. Now, in terms of video games, you also have the ability and often the incentive to replay earlier areas in order to drain them of every last bit of XP and treasure. You can also have much more complicated and visually intricate traps and encounters. Video games do systems really well. They can create rule sets that no book and no human being could track in real time. And you also have the ability to make a trap challenging every time the player encounters it. So games like Dark Souls do this sort of thing, whereby even though you're going back to an earlier area, you won't necessarily have an easy time because there's still dangers present. Whereas in an adventure game book, 
if you know the answer, you know the answer. It won't be a challenge to the same degree on the second run through. However, for gamebooks, just as being less flexible than a tabletop game, that's actually good for some kinds of dungeon. So too, being more flexible than video games is a good thing too. Video games have great systems, but they have the systems they have. They often struggle to add additional systems. If you want to add a specific minigame system for an encounter in a game book, you can do that. And you can do that even if it never comes up again. Add to that, there's the flexibility of description, which is broader than any graphical engine can come up with. It's often hard to justify creation of new assets in a video game, especially if they'll only be used once. So what you actually get is repeated use of the same trap, maybe in different configurations and different settings to lend it a veneer of novelty. Gamebooks, on the other hand, can give us an infinite variation of traps because they harness the most powerful graphics card of all time, the human imagination. I cannot believe I just said that. What I mean is that gamebooks, despite their simple choice-based resolution system, have the capacity to endlessly surprise. There's narrative games that have come close to this. The brilliant Reigns and Reigns Her Majesty show just how much content you can get out of making binary choices. But even then, the format is naturally constricting, and there's occasions where you feel like the ability to go off and do something else would be narratively fulfilling, but it can't exist within the game framework. So to beat this point to death, adventure game books, they're the natural home of the gotcha monster, the cloaker dropping out of the ceiling, the cantilevered floor, the hidden crossbow, and the jar full of scorpions next to the jar full of sweets. It's also a format that can simultaneously secretly teleport you to another part of the dungeon and tell you that that's happening without it seeming weird. That is something that should be celebrated. Now let us never speak of it again. Right, well, I've gone on at tedious length about a facet of game design. Uh, if you've got views, opinions, thoughts or whatever, you can send them to me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. I love getting emails and I always reply sooner or later. Well, I'm thinking maybe at some point I might record an episode about how I designed my adventure game book and what the thought process was behind some of the choices I made. So... Let me know if any of that would be of any interest to anyone. I've certainly learned a few lessons about what not to do. I'm hoping to be back later this month with a very special episode, having sought and obtained permission to do it from the writer of the game book. And uh, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. So I hope you will join me then. If you've enjoyed this episode, and it has been a bit of a marathon, why not leave me a cheeky little review or a rating on your podcast provider of choice? It would really help me out a great deal. Thank you so much for listening, if indeed you are still listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.